0: Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters Sports Bar will sponsor your next private event. Walters is located right across the street from the ballpark in Navy Yard.
1: Register at waltersdc.com and click the Inquire Now button.
2: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
3: swing and a fly ball right center field on the run is Robles to his left and it drops well in front of him that ball was in the air a long time and Robles kind of circled behind it and it dropped well in front of him so I don't know if he saw it Lane Thomas the right fielder was shaded more toward the line he never made a move that way toward right center field so if Robles lost the ball there was no help now the 3-2 on the way swung on ground ball toward the shortstop it's fielded clearly by DeYoung, the throw to first to Goldschmidt, and the Cardinals clinched themselves a series win, taking the first two games of this three-game series, Stay
0: with this one going away. And welcome to Nats Chat for Wednesday, June 21st, 2023, along with MassonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Nationals Park, I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, talk about a feel good and also a feel bad day. The Nats certainly had that on Tuesday. We, on Tuesday evening, got really good Nats news in the Masson dispute. The never ending, oh, so tedious Masson dispute. Could it be, might it be, finally about to come to an end? The Washington Post reported that the Orioles have agreed to pay the Nats the rest of the money owed for 2012 through 2016, about a hundred million dollars, much more on this later in the show. But then we had the actual Nats game on Tuesday night. And what we ended up having was an ugly Nats loss and uh, in more ways than one, a nine three loss to the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park in game two of a three game series. The Nats now have lost sixteen of their last twenty games. The Nats now are twenty seven and forty five. That is the worst record in the National League. And we, during the game, had an incident. As Kramer once said, there was an incident in the Nats dugout. Mackenzie Gore versus Victor Robles. Now, Mark, Jonathan Papelbon versus Bryce Harper. Mackenzie Gore versus Victor Robles was not. But this was not pretty. Uh, And this, I think, was emblematic in a lot of ways of the way that things are going for the Nats right now.
1: Yeah, it kind of felt, Al, like... This wasn't just about that one moment in the game, but this was something that was building for a little while, some frustration about how the team is playing overall and how things are going. And let's be clear, things are not going well for them right now. This was probably the low point of the season, the low point in quite a while for them from a baseball standpoint. They've lost five in a row. They've lost 13 of 15. And this one was ugly. And they didn't lose this game because of. The play that led to that confrontation, but it's certainly the moment that everybody will look at as evidence of things not going well. And we can get into what happened on the play. We can get into what the reaction from those two guys was, and we can get into what everybody said about it afterwards, part of which was surprising to me. This did not play out the way I necessarily thought it would. So there's a lot to get to on this, but I want to up front make the point to say that that play did not cost them this game. It was a bad play to be sure. And it led to a big moment between the two of them. But there were a lot of other things that did not go right in this game. And those are the reasons they lost this game.
0: Yeah, there's plenty of bad to go around with the Nats right now. They really are not playing well at all. And Tuesday night, in so many ways, captured that. But as for the incident between Mackenzie Gore and Victor Robley. So Mackenzie Gore, your Nats starting pitcher on Tuesday night, he in the top of the second allowed two runs, which came on a one-out two-run homer by Dylan Carlson, on a bomb to center field for a 2-0 Cardinals lead, the homer winner projected 445 feet per stat cast. But prior to the homer, was Gore giving up a one-out single by Jordan Walker to the right center field gap on a ball that fell right in front of Victor Robles. Now, this was strange. Robles was playing very deep it was a rather windy evening at Nationals Park, and Robles also seemingly was hampered by his back. He did not look right. If you watch this game, when he was running, he looked kind of stiff, he looked awkward, and this was a strange looking play. The ball just like landed right in front of Victor Robles, certainly seemed more than catchable. Remember, Robles just came off the 10 uh, day injured list this past Friday. He was on that from May 8th, retroactive to May 7th, until this past Friday with a back issue. Well, Mackenzie Gore was not happy with what went down with Victor Robles on that single by Jordan Walker. There was a great shot on the mass and telecast of the game after the single of Gore seemingly giving Robles a death stare. I mean, Gore was just like staring right at Robles. And then we had what happened after the end of that half inning. Gore and Robles had what appeared to be a heated discussion in the Nats dugout. This was a brief incident. This did not last for very long, but things certainly appeared to get heated. At one point, Ildemar Vargas was among those who stepped in between Mackenzie Gore and and Victor Robles. We want to play for you right now what Davey Martinez during his post game press conference had to say about what happened with Mackenzie Gore and Victor Robles. And then we'll react to the reaction. Here you go. You know, obviously, you, you guys are talking about Mackenzie and, and Robles. They talked about it. We talked about it. It's good. As far as I'm concerned, it's good. So it happens. You know, we're trying to compete. It happens. We
1: just- on, what did
0: you see on the play? And, and well, obviously, McKenzie thought he should have caught the ball, but I thought he should have caught the ball, but the it was windy. Yeah, I think I think he thought he was going to catch it easy, and the ball just died on him and couldn't get there. It, looked like on the, uh, it was showing It looked like you went over and kind of walked by McKenzie a little bit. What prompted you to want to? I just wanted to make sure that nothing was going to go crazy there in the dugout, so I just got in between them and just, it was good. I mean, like I said, just a few words were said, and then and, and it was done.
1: Do you feel like Victor is 100% healthy just watching him run the bases, take his position? It didn't seem
0: like he going Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to actually talk to him again here in a little bit just to see where he's at. And I'll, I'll find out what he's thinking. All right. So that was Davey Martinez during his postgame presser on Tuesday night about what happened with Gore and Robles. You were here for all of this. I know you said that you were surprised by the reaction. What specifically surprised you?
1: Well, I was surprised First of all, that Davey wasn't more upset about the overall state of things, about the way that they played the game. I thought this was the kind of game that after it was over, he was going to close the clubhouse, have a team meeting, and maybe chew into some guys. Not just because of that moment, but because of a lot of things and the way they were playing the game, the way it was getting sloppy there late, and just, again, the way things are going. You've lost five straight, all of them at home. You've lost 13 of 15. Things are not moving in a good direction. And so what I was surprised at was the manner in which he kind of downplayed both the larger picture and also that particular play. Now, everybody was in agreement and we talked both to Mackenzie Gore and Victor Robles as well after the game. They all basically agreed, yeah, he should have caught that ball. There was no excuse really making for any of that. But they also all were insisting that everybody had talked over, they're fine, there's no lingering effect. It's not anything that was going to carry over through the rest of the night or beyond into any future days. I'll give them all credit for that and take them at their word for that. It was just a little surprising. It's not the way I usually expect something like that to go. Now, let me first give you my thought watching it from high above behind home plate as it's happening in front of my eyes. Victor Robles and Lane Thomas, for that matter, were playing really deep throughout the entire game. Now, some of that is the Cardinals hit for power, so you're going to play deep on them. But the wind was blowing very strong, especially unusual for this time of year, in from right field, and you would have thought would be knocking things down. The Cardinals outfield was playing exceptionally shallow for the entire night. Now, some of that's a reflection of the Nats' lack of power, and so they're going to be positioned a little differently, but it also felt like they were taking the wind into consideration and the Nationals were not. On that ball that goes up, it felt like my initial reaction watching it was that Robles' was not accounting for the wind and just thought it was going to carry deeper, realized it wasn't, and just kind of gave up on the play when he realized he didn't have a chance at it. And that's why it looked so bad. It's not necessarily that he didn't catch it. It's that he didn't even try to catch it in the end. But then hearing from him, first of all, number one, after watching him the rest of the night, the way he was moving around the bases, taking his position in the field, he did not look healthy to me. I thought this guy is still dealing with some issues here with his back, and maybe that had something to do with it. Now, after the game, he insisted that he was feeling fine, that he was a little worried the previous night on that play that he broke in, then broke back, crashed into the wall. He was a little worried about how the back would feel after that, but that ever since then, he says he's fine. We'll see. I would not be surprised if this is something that's still lingering in the days to come, and if he's not 100% healthy, that would not surprise me. The second part of it, and I thought this was maybe the most interesting of it all, Victor did say that the real issue on that play is that he's being positioned to play deeper than he's used to playing. He said that's something the coaching staff has instructed him to do, and he's feeling a little lost. Those were his words right now when it comes to judging fly balls off the bat because he's starting from a different position than he is used to. Now, what I gathered from the coaching staff is, yes, they have asked him to move back some but that he also maybe went a little further than they wanted him to in this game, especially considering the wind. There's definitely a miscommunication or something going on there, because it didn't seem like there was any real reason for him to be playing as deep as he was in this game, but he is being asked to play deeper, and he is openly acknowledging that he's not real comfortable with that.
0: That's really interesting. If he was playing deeper than the team wanted, There's really no excuse for that. You need to communicate to him to come in. Like, I don't understand why that wouldn't change in an instant if you don't like where exactly he's playing. I think the personalities in this are worth noting, too. We know Mackenzie Gore is very intense, very self-critical. He hasn't been at his best lately. And, you know, you wonder if that played a role in this, of him jumping on Robles the way that Gore did. I mean, like I said, it wasn't just what happened to the dugout. After that ball fell, Gore was like giving really a, a mean glare at Robles after that play. And, you know, Gore, of course, then gave up the home run. That was a hit that happened on that play with Robles. It's not like that was some run scoring play. I mean, that's not the end of the world that something like that happened. So I think part of this is the way Gore is, his makeup, he's intense, he's critical. Part of this is the way that things are going for Gore right now and went for Gore in this game. But, you know, I also think that this is true. Victor Robles is a guy for whom there seems to be a green light to rip. Davey Martinez isn't often critical, but he seems to have no problem being critical of Victor Robles. Now, I'm not saying this as like the Victor Robles defender, because I think he deserves a lot of the criticism that he gets. And I think the reason that he takes so much criticism, well, I think there's a lot to that. You know, I think it has to do with the multitude of his mistakes. It has to do with the fact that he's been a major league player for years now and should know better. You know, it has to do with the fact that this guy was a highly regarded prospect who really has fallen off. So, you know, he deserves a lot of the criticism that he gets. But I think it's interesting. No one comes close to receiving the public criticism that Victor Robles gets with this team, even though a lot of guys have deserved criticism in recent years. I mean, Patrick Corbin, the last few years has been horrendous. And yet Davey Martinez, Mike Rizzo, they like never are critical of Corbin. It's always like, no, he's pitching well. He's doing this. He's doing that. So I find that interesting. And I wonder if that played a role in this, too, of like, yeah, you know what, on this team? It's kind of okay to go after old Victor, and Gore did that publicly. We don't have incidents like this often with the Nats. I mean, like I said, you can pinpoint Papelbon Harper in 2015. We had the thing with Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg a few years ago. But, like, name me the other dugout incidents with the Nats since the franchise came here. There really have not been that many. And so I just, I think there was a lot in play with that moment. And like I said, it was brief. It wasn't like it was a huge blow up, but it definitely was noticeable, you know, noticeable enough to where it got talked about a good bit during Davies' post-game press conference.
1: Right. And I think you make some very good points in all of that. I think Gore is frustrated with not just that play, but everything else. Like you said, he immediately gave up a home run right after that. So he's not happy about that. And maybe he's taking out and projecting a little of that frustration on Robles, I think reading between the lines here that maybe McKenzie quickly understood what Victor was trying to say about his positioning and accepting blame. Victor did say, I should have caught that ball, but also pointing out where he was positioned. So maybe McKenzie is then kind of saying, Okay, I get it. I understand. You know, you took responsibility. Thanks. All right, we're good now. Maybe there is some of that. Gore afterwards was highly critical of himself and the way that he pitched. He said, I stunk tonight. You can't give up five runs as a starting pitcher and expect to win the game. So there was a lot of self-flagellation on his part, which we know he is somebody that is capable of doing that as well. So there were a lot of interesting dynamics to this all. And I agree that, and I, I hear it from readers, from fans, the same thing. Why is Robles under the microscope more and criticized more than anyone else? And it is probably true. I think for all the reasons you outlined, that's maybe why that's the case. He has been around longer. There are repeat mistakes that you would say by this point in someone's career, you would hope not to be seeing consistently from him. I think also because of the reputation and the repeat mistakes, we are maybe more attuned to everything that he does and notice every little thing that he does more so than somebody else who we haven't been watching as closely like that. So there could be some of that. It's kind of a fascinating subject, to be honest. And yeah, I do think Davey and others are hard on him in a way they aren't always on others, but I think it's also a sign of them understanding how good he can still be and the frustration that some of these things have not improved or that some of the same issues come up year after year. There's a lot to that. And I think there's a lot to do with the two guys' personalities and and everything involved in that. And it made for an interesting scene at this game tonight. But like I said, I think what I was struck most by was the way that they seemed to all just kind of come to an agreement on what happened and say, we're going to move on and not let that turn into anything more than it was.
0: Yeah. And we know that things like this happen. I mean, if you know your baseball history, you know, the Oakland A's of the 1970s hated each other's guts and yet won a lot. And so it's not the end of the world that something like this happens, but it certainly stands out. And if everyone, in fact, has moved on from it and you know maybe learned some lessons from it then that is a good thing now Mackenzie Gore did not pitch well in this game five runs in six innings he gave up nine hits two home runs two doubles and five singles he issued two walks he did have eight strikeouts he actually did throw a pretty good number of strikes 98 pitches 66 strikes versus 32 balls but things did not go well for Gore Top of the second, he allowed the two runs, as we just discussed. Top of the fifth, he allowed two runs. Gave up a one-out first pitch infield single by Tommy Edmond on a well-hit one-hop grounder that got away from C.J. Abrams. Gore gave up a one-out single by Paul Goldschmidt. We then got yet another uncontested double steal by a Nationals opponent. Tommy Edmond and Paul Goldschmidt pulled off this double steal. Why this keeps happening, I don't know, but it keeps happening. And Gore then gave up a one-out RBI sack fly by Nolan Arenado. And Gore then gave up a two-out opposite field RBI double by Wilson Contreras for a 4-1 Cardinals lead. And then Gore in the top of the sixth allowed a run on a leadoff full count homer by Dylan Carlson to left field for a 5-1 Cardinals lead. Another 400-plus-foot home run, 404 feet for Carlson here. But also for Gore in the inning was him registering three swinging strikeouts. It was good to see Gore have the eight strikeouts. But, you know, it just was not a very good outing. I mean, even like I look at the top of the fourth, scoreless top of the fourth, but he in the inning gave up a one-out double by Contreras, issued back-to-back two-out walks to Dylan Carlson and Paul DeYoung to load the bases. But Gore, to his credit, did then strike out Andrew Kisner looking on three pitches for the third out. So we know how it is with Mackenzie Gore. He is ultra critical of himself, which I actually think is a good quality. And like I said, he did have the eight strikeouts, but You know, with Josiah Gray going as he's going right now, we have Mackenzie Gore kind of in a similar place. He's had a few good outings here lately, but he's also had some clunkers or near clunkers. And this one on Tuesday night pretty clearly was a clunker.
1: Yeah. And you can still see all the good stuff. Like you said, the eight strikeouts, he has the ability to do that. Up until the Robles play, I don't know whether it was coincidence or not, he was pounding the strike zone in a way that we have not seen from him. His first 10 pitches of the game were all strikes. So that's really good stuff. Now, then obviously things fall apart after that. What you see is the quality of the stuff is good, but he does need to locate it. He can't just get away with putting it down the middle of the plate, which I think is what he was hitting himself on for the home runs that he gave up. So there's that. If you're hitting your spots and throwing his variety of pitches that he has, he can be really successful, strike out eight guys and and you know went six full innings on a relatively moderate pitch count. So it's not like that was a big issue for him. It got lost in the shuffle somewhat, but that uncontested double steal, and let me say to people, when I say uncontested, I don't mean that the Nats purposely let them steal it. It was that by the time Riley Adams even had the ball, there wasn't much reason to attempt to throw because the jump was so good. So that's as most of these are on the pitcher, but that was a small, but really critical moment for them. It's a two-to-one game at that point. It puts two runners in scoring position. The first one scores on a sack fly, would not have been able to do that from second base. The second one ends up scoring on a double, may not have done that from first base if he doesn't steal the bases. So those are those little things that are really coming back to haunt them right now. And I put that as much on Mackenzie Gore as I do the home runs that he gave up in this game.
0: And, you know, as we're going through the game, you're seeing once again, bullet point by bullet point the latest examples of the Nats' defense faltering, whether it's the Robles play with the single or the Tommy Edmond infield single on which the one-hop grounder got away from C.J. Abrams or the uncontested double steal or the throwing error by Abrams later in the game. Like every game now, there are multiple things you can point at in terms of bad defense, sloppy defense by the Nats. I mean, the defense really has fallen off here. And, you know, not so coincidentally, you have the Nats struggling as they are right now. Well, Mackenzie Gore on Tuesday night had problems, and uh, so too did the Nats bullpen. Uh, David Martinez only used two relievers in this game, but the two relievers combined to allow four runs in three innings. Thaddeus Ward allowed two runs in two innings. And then we had a Hunter Harvey sighting. Hunter Harvey in this game pitched for just the fifth time this month. He, in the top of the ninth, allowed two runs. He threw a whopping 31 pitches in this top of the ninth. He, on the first pitch that he threw, issued a leadoff hit-by-pitch of Wilson Contreras, then gave up a two-out, two-run homer by Paul DeYoung to center field for a 9-2 Cardinals lead. Another 400-plus foot bomb by the Cardinals in this game, 433 feet per stat cast, Then Harvey issued a two-out walk of Andrew Kisner. Then came that throwing error by C.J. Abrams, came on a two-out grounder by Brendan Donovan up the middle. As Abrams, to me, again had problems on a grounder on which he ranged to his left. I'm noticing this with Abrams. He seems to particularly have trouble on balls on which he has to range to his left, balls up the middle. This has happened a few times here lately. So he has a throwing error there. And so you get a not so great outing from Hunter Harvey, gave up another home run. And so, you know, we've been saying this, but I think it's worth like highlighting. When we talk about, well, Huckum Chad Cool pitched, Huckum Jordan Weems pitched, Huckum Hunter Harvey didn't pitch, Harvey's not pitching well. None of these guys really truly are pitching well. I mean, here you had Harvey as fresh as could be, and he did not look good in this game.
1: Yeah, I think I said the other day. We may have gotten to a point where Hunter Harvey is going to have to pitch no matter what because it had been so long. So it was five days off. And yeah, he looked rusty. Very first pitch, he hits the batter and then things you know went downhill from there. Now, you've got to be able to pitch well, no matter how much time you've had off, whether it's one day or five days, whether it's a safe situation or whether it's mop-up duties, but that was a spot that he's not necessarily used to being in, and I wonder if that little bit of edge that you have as a late-inning reliever isn't there for you when you come in in the ninth inning trailing by five runs at that point. Doesn't excuse it. It wasn't good. And then the problem, as you said, he throws 31 pitches. Now, if they're in a position where they might need him... On Wednesday, is he unavailable because of the 31 pitches that he threw? It's the forever conundrum of bullpen management. Do you just save those guys for the big high leverage spots? If you don't have any of those for a while because you're in a losing streak, do you feel compelled to use him? And then if so, does that haunt you the next day or the day after that? It's a no-win situation there, but it did not go well in this case, both in terms of how he did, but now what the domino effect of it might be.
0: Yeah. And something like that error by Abrams ends up driving up Harvey's pitch count. You know, that's kind of like the double whammy with that. You know, there's like the actual play, which isn't good, you know, but the game was over by that point anyway. But then there's the uh, secondary effect of, well, it furthers Hunter Harvey pitching in that inning. And so the pitch count goes up even more. Not a good game for the Nats offense on Tuesday night. Just three runs, just eight hits, although four of the eight hits were extra base hits. But the Nats worked just one walk. I mentioned this the other show. The Nats just do not work walks these days. That's really starting to be troublesome here. And uh, the Nats on Tuesday night, one for seven with runners in scoring position. Stone Garrett did have a good game. He was an Nats' starting left fielder and number five batter. Got on base three times, two for three with an RBI double, a single, and a walk. He and the Nats, one run fourth, had a two out first pitch, RBI doubled to left to cut the Nats deficit to 2 1. Yeah, this was a 2 1 game, ended up being a 9 3 game. And the Nats did hit two triples on Tuesday night. Riley Adams had an oh by the way triple. Uh, he, in a Nats one run ninth, a two out opposite field RBI triple to the right field corner to cut the Nats deficit to 9 3. And Luis Garcia had a triple in this game. He went one for four. He had a one run fourth, had a leadoff triple off the right field warning track, despite having been down to the count at point 0-2 and it was so bizarre. We mentioned Robles playing so deep in this game. On this triple by Garcia, the ball ended up going over the right fielder for the Cardinals, Dylan Carlson, who was playing exceptionally shallow in this game. I wonder what it was that the Cardinals were seeing versus what the Nats were seeing, to where Nats outfielders were so deep and Cardinals infielders were so shallow. Like, did they get two different weather reports? Like, how does that happen?
1: Like I said earlier, I think the Cardinals maybe overplayed the wind, the Nationals underplayed the wind, and then I'm sure there is a little bit of that, okay, we know the Nats don't hit for power, so we're going to play in on them. Whereas the Cardinals do hit for power, so they're playing back. But it was striking to see each half inning the difference in how they were positioned. And that definitely came back to haunt the Cardinals on that one because that's a ball that he hit it to the warning track, but he hit it up in the air. If you're playing at normal depth in right field, you're going to have a play on that one. And instead, he didn't. It was a really weird game when it came to outfield positioning. And how that affected some of those hits. I wanna mention the walks because you've brought it up. I looked into it actually the other day, and this is a real disturbing trend. They already didn't draw a lot of walks earlier in the year, but through the first two months of the year, they were averaging just under three per game. Since June 3rd, this is the, now they've lost 13 of these 15 games, they've averaged 1.4 walks per game. That is nothing. They are making quick outs, they are chasing pitches out of the zone, they're not striking out. Their strikeout rate has actually gone down during the losing streak, but I think it's because they are chasing pitches out of the zone and they are making contact on them and making weak contact on them, and that's all the outs they're making. I'm not saying you go up there looking for walks, but 1.4 per game, these opposing pitchers aren't that great with their command that they can get away with that. The Nationals have got to be more patient. Try to get on base any way that you can.
0: I will gladly exchange more strikeouts for more walks. I think the limiting of strikeouts, I mean, it's wonderful if you can do it, but not at the expense of walks. Like, the whole thing with strikeouts being taboo, like, we've really gotten away from that. No, you don't want to strike out, but if you happen to strike out a little bit, that's okay if that means seeing more pitches, working pitchers more, driving up pitch counts, and drawing some walks. I mean, it's not good. Most good offenses draw walks. Like, that's just usually the way that it is now. If you look at, like, the best offensive teams, they almost always are good at drawing walks, and the Nats are not. One more thing with the offense. Offense. And back to our friend Victor Robles. So he did have two hits in this game. He went two for four with a couple of singles. He and the Nats one run eighth had a leadoff single off the left field wall. The rare single off the wall. There were boos after this hit, presumably because Robles hit a ball off the wall and didn't wind up on second base.
3: Now the pitch swung on. Robles hits it in the air to deep left field. Newpark going back. It's over his head and off the wall. He plays the Karen perfectly. And Robles, little... Bu- more than a third of way to second base has to slam the brakes on and go back to first. Nupar
0: on a ball off the left field wall holds Robles to a single. Did you think that Robles should have wound up at second base? Or did you think that that was a true single, just, you know, a long single?
1: So I was very much watching the replays of that to see how he was coming out of the batter's box. In my opinion, watching it, he was running out of the box. He's not running well right now. I think that was the number one factor. He is not at 100%. The ball took a good carom. Lars Newtbar and maybe some of what sounded like booze may have been Cardinal fans chanting Newt for the good play by Newtbar because he did retrieve it well and threw it back in. So There may have been some of that as well. But Yeah, this was not to me a case of a guy admiring what he thought was going to be a home run and then having to turn on the Jets. I don't think he was running well enough to get hard out of the box and to round first. And then moments later, Abrams with the double that you would think 100% Victor Robles would score on, and instead he's held up at third. I don't think he's 100% right now, and I'm really interested to see what happens in the coming days as they maybe address that.
0: Yeah, he did not look right physically on Tuesday night. The Nats have not looked right in quite some time here. but. Whereas the game on Tuesday night did not go well, the news of Tuesday evening prior to the game was very good news from a Nationals perspective, and we'll get to that after this.
4: Right before the end of the Nats season in late September, Bruce Springsteen is coming to Nationals Park. If you're trying to find tickets to the concert, check out the Game Time app. Buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. GameTime is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. It's the fastest-growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. Get images of your seat before you buy so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive. Snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the GameTime app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download Game Time
0: today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Hey, guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Well, we all know what summer means. Uh, Summer means baseball. Summer usually means more home runs in baseball, but uh, summer also means heat and humidity and your energy bills being rather high due to your air conditioning working extra innings. It is time to beat the heat with Window Nation's Summer Sale. Save thousands of dollars with An outstanding offer. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two years, plus... Window Nation will give you two free windows for every two windows that you buy. All you have to do is call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat podcast. Increase the value of your home by up to $12,000. Hey, make your neighbors jealous. Who doesn't want to do that? Again, the Window Nation summer sale. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two years plus Two free windows for every two windows that you buy. And this goes for any style of window from Window Nation. Eight six six ninety nation or visit windownation.com. That's eight six six ninety nation or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Goldie sent ya.
4: Hey, Natch Chat listeners. Here to tell you about bird dogs, the world's most comfortable pants. Bird dogs make you look good. Bird dog shorts also do the exact same thing as Lululemon but fit way better. They also fit better than regular shorts that are made of a stiff, restricting cotton. Go to birddogs.com pool and enter promo code pool. That's spelled P O O L for a free Yeti style tumbler with your order. That's birddogs.com pool for a free Yeti style tumbler. You won't want to take your bird dogs off. We promise you.
0: All right folks, you know that's going to do it. 36 great years of history in Montreal has come to an end. The lights are still on, but they will go out very soon. We wish them all the best of luck as they take their act to Washington, D.C. And Washington, if you're watching, you're getting a good team. From all of us to you. Au revoir from Montreal. All right. Good to have you with us on this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. So like we've been saying during this show, we had the Nats game on Tuesday night. That was not good. But we also had Nats news prior to the game on Tuesday night. And that news was very good. Washington Post national baseball writer Chelsea Janes and Washington Post sports and media reporter Ben Strauss. They on Tuesday evening reported of a major development in the mass in dispute. And that development is that the Orioles have agreed to pay the Nats the rest of the money owed to the Nats for the 2012 through 2016 seasons, about $100 million. Now, This does not mean that the massive dispute is over. Again, this money is for 2012 through 2016. We have had multiple years since 2016, right? So we still have to address 2017 through 2023. But there is a sense, there is a hope anyway, that the O's paying that adds this money could make determining fees easier moving forward, although that is far from a guarantee. So Mark has uh, recused himself from this conversation, given that he is an employee of Masson, and uh, we totally understand that, but I'm very pleased to welcome in the uh, brains of the Nats Chat podcast operation, Tim Shovers. Tim's coming in from the bullpen. Will this be a uh, Nats bullpen-like performance from you, or will this be something uh, cut above what we've become accustomed to from Nats relievers?
4: Good news. The Nats finally have a left-hander out of the bullpen. I'm left-handed, and I'm here, so uh, thrilled to be here.
0: That's right. Tim is a lefty. He is an effective lefty. He's peak Sean Doolittle. He's not like Anthony Bonda or something like that. All right. So, the Masson dispute I mean, not to do a whole history lesson on this thing, but it is one of the most tedious, long lasting things in the history of Washington, D.C. sports. The Masson dispute dates all the way back to April 2012 has to do with what the Nats should be receiving from the O's, who in essence own Masson, which of course was created in 2005 to televise Nats and O's games off the relocation of the Expos to D.C., with D.C. having been deemed Orioles' broadcast territory. So we had this dispute that started in 2012. The dispute ended up being taken before something called the Revenue Sharing Definitions Committee, the RSDC which was created by MLB. The back and forth that has been the mass in dispute has gone on and on for years, has included multiple appeals, has included the New York Supreme Court. A big occurrence in the mass in dispute was the RSDC twice-ruling that the Nats were owed $296.8 million for 2012 through 2016. Masson actually paid the Nats $197.5 million. The O's still owed the Nats $99.3 million. And it is that sum, the $99.3 million, that has been up in these recent years. It was in October 2020 that the New York Supreme Court's appellate division ruled against the O's in an appeal but the O's said that they would take the case to the State of New York Court of Appeals, which is New York's highest court. We, this past April 25th, learned that the State of New York Court of Appeals had ruled in favor of the Nats. In fact, all six judges ruled in favor of the Nats. So the O's were running out of legal options here. Their only legal option that was left in this portion of the dispute was to take the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, if you can believe that, and the U.S. Supreme Court may well have decided to not even hear the case. And so we on Tuesday evening got this news from The Post that the O's have agreed to pay the Nats the rest of this money owed for 2012 through 2016 about $100 million. So the significance of this, again, is that we may now have a template for this mass and dispute finally ending. Although, again, you still got to figure out 2017 through 2023. Now, the big question would be, If the Masson dispute is finally mercifully being resolved, does this, in fact, pave the way for the sale of the Nats to happen? Because we know that the number one holdup to the sale of the Nats has been this Masson situation. Do you believe, Tim, that uh, we are getting closer to the Nats being sold, or do you think that we're still a ways away from that?
4: I think yes to both of those. I think we're closer to the Nats getting sold, and I still think we're a ways away because, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on this matter. I I read the Washington Post article like you and just heard you give a more comprehensive update there. But it sounds to me like a lot of years would still have to be figured out. And if it took this long to figure out five years, I know there's a bit of a baseline now and a framework and more numbers have been attached to specific years. But this took, what, seven years roughly to figure out up through 2016. So even a quicker pace would still be three and a half years, like still feels like we're going to be dealing with this in 2025, 2026, if you ask me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think with this situation, you bet on the over, not the under in terms of time. I mean, we've come to learn that. I mean, just think about it like this. What happened this past April 25th, this ruling from the state of New York Court of Appeals, that was based on an initial ruling from October 2020. So it took from October 2020 to late April of this year just to figure that out. And like you just said, like we've been saying, you know, you still got to work out 2017 through 2023. I think there's so much, though, to like to be thinking about with all of this. So there's the figuring out of the money from 17 through 23. There even is once you do that, the actual reaching of an agreement for the sale of the Nats. So it's like, okay, even if you figure out the whole Masson dispute Then what ends up happening with the sale of the Nats? We know how the learners are. They are notorious for grinding out deals and extracting, you know, every last nickel out of every transaction. And I say that with respect because that's part of why the learners have been so successful financially. But, you know, there's that aspect of things. You have the situation with what's going on with these RSNs, these regional sports networks of, okay, so we've heard so much about Ted Leonsis wanting to buy the Nats. He wants to buy the Nats because he wants to have programming for NBC Sports Washington, which is Monumental Sports and Entertainment Empire now owns. But the RSN business is having a lot of problems right now. You know, this is one of the worst times to be putting money into an RSN. Nobody really knows the future of these regional sports networks. So, to what degree does that complicate things? You, of course, have Masson as an RSN. So, what might that mean for Masson? What might that mean for the money that Masson slash the Orioles are willing to pay the Nats for 2017 through 2023? And then there's also still this. There is a widespread belief, and I've had multiple people tell me this, that when Peter Angelos passes, and Peter Angelos has been in failing health for years, the Orioles will be sold. So if the O's get sold, what does that mean for all of this? Does that make a settlement of the mass and dispute easier? Does that still not make it easy? Because even if you're a new ownership of the O's, you're still going to want to cling to the Nats broadcast rights as valuable as those things are. So yeah, I mean, the point here is that there's so much to this situation beyond just the simple mass in dispute, which of course isn't simple at all. So I think if you're a Nats fan, you feel good about the news from Tuesday, but I think you also have to be realistic of, you know, you may have to grab a Snickers. This thing may take a while.
4: <laughs> I like that there, Al. I was about to make a Holiday Inn Express joke, but you beat me to it. So uh, I'll just move to something else. Just thinking offhand here, and again, cannot stress enough how over my skis I am in this conversation But, okay, so are they going to barter 2019 and have some sort of ex post facto conversation about the World Series championship here? What about 2020 alone? They were defending world champions, but there wasn't a baseball game until, when was opening day, July? So what do you do with the prorated schedule with 60 games? Oh, by the way, there was no one attending the games and people were out of routine. So almost 2020 alone you could drag your feet on. And I'll add one more thing that you said, Al. For those of you who don't know about San Jose, but if you ever have followed the Oakland Athletics saga, just know that they couldn't move to San Jose without the San Francisco Giants giving permission. This dates all the way back to the mid-'80s when there was sort of an agreement between the two franchises that they could both look there. Giants ownership changed hands. They felt they owned San Jose and Bud Selig never figured it out. He put together this phantom blue ribbon commission point being that would only complicate the matter in my opinion here. And I'll give you a DC answer. Al you talk about over under. I still think this is unresolved by the midterms. 2026.
0: Wow. That would be horrible.
4: (laughs) Yeah. that's, That's how not jubilant I am from this news. And I just consider it another part of the saga.
0: You might be right. And the way this thing has gone, history suggests that you have a much greater chance of being right than someone who is more bullish on this. I mean, I just want this darn thing to end like everybody else. But yeah, there are many reasons to think that it won't be necessarily ending as quickly as we want. But at least there is this, at least you have figured out 2012. Through 2016. Boy, it's interesting. The O's, uh, you know, maybe possibly didn't have the money. All of a sudden they have this money, you know, it makes you wonder what else they might have. And, you know, maybe that uh, this thing could get worked out in a quicker fashion if the O's were more willing to get it worked out. But, you know, you mentioned Bud Selig and I always come back to that. I get the venom that Nats fans have for the O's for Peter Angelos. I get it. I do. I mean, I- I'm born and raised in Washington, D.C. But to me, the blame really belongs on Bud Selig and MLB for setting up this uh, Foucault situation to begin with. Because Peter Angelos is like any gangster owner, okay? He did what he was allowed to get away with. D.C. was Orioles' territory. He wanted to protect that territory. It wasn't his territory to have forever. What MLB could have done is work something out you know, maybe a financial arrangement by which maybe for the first 10 years of the Nats, Angelos got a cut of the TV revenue or 15 years or something like that. This was set up to be a deal in perpetuity, which is just mind boggling when you think about that, that Bud Selig set this up to where the Orioles will always own the Nationals broadcast rights. Why you would do that, why you would bend over backwards for Peter Angelos like that, I'll never understand, but he did what I think a lot of owners would have done. I think if the situation was reversed, the learners would have done the same thing. Like, this is how these owners are. It's your job as a commissioner. It's your job as a sport, as a league, to be the parent, you know, to be the overseer and to figure out something that's in the best interest for everyone, not something that's just going to shut up the person who's the loudest complainer in all of this. So I just, I still always come back to that. I can't get over that MLB actually set this up. I mean, if you go back and read when Masson was established, the idea with this thing was that the O's and Nats would negotiate in good faith to set fair market value for the telecast rights fees in five-year increments. What made anyone think there would be negotiating in good faith in this thing? Like, come on, especially with the O's owning Masson, like, give me a break. So this was pretty predictable. It obviously has ended up being a big mess. All you could do is hope for the best. But yeah, don't hold your breath on this thing getting resolved as quickly as we all want it to be resolved. All right, hit us up on Twitter. Tell us what you think. You can find us uh, on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We have a new website. Check that out, NatsChatPodcast.com. Your next Nationals game is another afternoon game. The Nats with three scheduled afternoon games in this work week. It's not often that we have that, but the Nats will try to avoid a three-game sweep to the Cardinals Wednesday afternoon at 4.05. Trevor Williams will be the Nats starting pitcher. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark. For the Nats Chat podcast music, visit timnewmark.com. For Mark Zuckerman and Tim Shovers, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat podcast.
3: Here's the 1-1 from Woodford, swung on and hit on the ground, fair! Inside the first baseline will roll all the way down into the corner. Garrett Raceman to third, he makes the turn, he'll be waved home. He will score as Adams goes into third with a stand-up
4: triple. Uh, well, that was an incident.